That is such a great passage because it reveals that everything doesn't always go right for believers, that we too face difficult times. And I think sometimes people look at Christians and think, well, they've got it all together, or maybe they don't look at Christians at all. Uh, and sometimes Christians think that way of themselves, that, man, why is trouble coming my way? Well, because you're part of the same world that the world lives in. And, and sin and suffering is part of this world, and we see the fallout of it, and you and I experience that fallout. Yet, God is faithful, and we now turn in our study in Matthew's Gospel to another part of, the, of this uh, wonderful uh, Gospel. Uh, we began last September, if you believe that. We started in September with the study of Matthew's Gospel, and our intention was to become familiar with the kingdom of heaven, and obviously with the king of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ. We discovered that as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is our king. He is the sovereign who rules over us. We are his royal subjects. He's the king of all creation. Jesus is the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of all kings. And if we're to break down the first 13 chapters, if you want to write this in your little journal, they're Matthew journals. And by the way, if you're visiting, we have Matthew journals that you can use and, uh, and write your own notes. They're in the back. You can take one if you'd like. I think their cost is nominal. But interestingly, um, we, what we find is in the first 13 chapters, two sections. I've broken it down into two different sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 10, and in that we studied the king revealed. We learned about the ministry of Jesus. We learned who he is. We learned that he himself is worthy to be king. And, and then we go into chapters 11 through 13 that we just finished up, and that was all about the king uh, being resisted, that they did not receive his message. Many, the people didn't receive the message. They loved the healings, they loved the signs and wonders, but they really weren't committing to Jesus. And then there were the, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they attacked Jesus, coming at him with questions, thinking they could trap him somehow. There were the religious leaders who were bothered by the fact that this man has a following. He's pulling people away from us. And so we see this king resisted. And then, then today we start a third section in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's the king retreats. The king retreats. It's in chapter 14 is where we begin. And I'm not talking about retreat in the sense of losing a battle and pulling back. Rather, we're talking about pulling, Jesus pulling away from the crowds so that he can share essential principles with his disciples. He's actually beginning to pull back now because his days are numbered. He knows that at some point he's going to go to the cross, he's going to suffer and die for the sins of mankind. So in the time that he has left, he begins to put more emphasis on his disciples and teaching them, but also because many of the people have resisted the message. And so He's going he's to cast uh, the pearls where the pearls can be appreciated, those who believe in him. And so pick up at verse 1 with me. What I'd like to do today, one of the things that we hold dear is the word of God. This is how we come to know God and how we're able to worship him as a church family. And the, I think the best way to know God is in a verse-by-verse -verse approach. 
And I'm not saying that sub, sub, subjective or topical messages don't have a place. They do. There were some pretty good topical preachers in the day. I see H. Spurgeon being one. Uh, here's another name you might be familiar with, Jesus. He was a topical preacher. Okay, so it's not that we're, we're poo-pooing on topical preaching, but, but if you really want to grow in Christ and you really want to be a discipling church, then you have to take one bite at a time and you teach the whole Scripture, not just the parts that people want to hear or the parts that you like preaching. And so that's why today we're again back in a verse-by-verse study and we're going to pick it up at verse 1. It says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Now this, right out of the gate, you hear Herod, and what do you think of? You think about the Herod who was against uh, the, the, the king that he discovered is out there and had all the male children slaughtered, all the males slaughtered uh, back when Jesus was born. And that would not be the correct Herod. That was Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas, A-N-T-I-P-A-S. And he's just a newer version of the same old wickedness, believe me. Herod Antipas uh, wasn't as bloodthirsty as his father was, but he's just as self-absorbed, and he's, he is a depraved mind, believe me. Uh, he is given over to perversion sin, sexual sin, and we're going to see that right here in the next few verses. In chapter, um, verse 2 it says, And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So this Herod is having somewhat of a conscience issue. Uh, his conscience is working hard against him. He's thinking that Jesus, who now has become popular, that he's heard about, who's performing miracles and healings, he thinks it's John the Baptist who's come back in the flesh. So because, because he's the one that put John the Baptist to death. He's the one who did it. Look at verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in a prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's, brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have, to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Now let's break this down just a little bit for you. Again, we're taking the scripture and we're expounding on it. We're explaining it. It's exposition of the text. And what we see here, Herodias was the wife of this Herod Antipas, the wife of his brother Philip. So it was Herod Antipas and it was Herod Philip. Those are two brothers, the sons of Herod the Great. Okay? And, and so he goes and visits his brother, and Herod Antipas sees his wife and says, I want that gal for myself. And so he actually talks her into leaving her husband, his brother, and coming and be, becoming his wife. Only problem is, he has a wife already. So he has to put her off, and he does. He gets rid of her, he, di he ditches her, and takes Herodias, his brother's wife, to be his own. Well, guess what? That makes great uh, daytime television, doesn't it? I mean, this, you, couldn't, you can't beat this stuff. I mean, this is Dr. Phil level good, okay? He'd love to have these folks on, on his show. Um, but it's not over. 
when all this happened, John the Baptist confronted Herod Antipas on his activities, reminding him of God's law regarding marriage. He called out his sin, which is exactly what you would expect a prophet to do. So he brings a personal oracle of woe to Herod, claiming the Old Testament scripture regarding marriage, regarding uh, divorce. And so he does that, and because of it, Herod's response was to put John into prison. Now, something happened while John the Baptist was in prison. Uh, We don't see it here in the text, but the Gospel of Mark records it for us. And what we learn is that Herod started meeting together with John the Baptist while he was in prison, and they developed a friendship. Evidently, Herod saw that John was a godly man, obviously, and he was a wise man. So there was a respect for John the Baptist, even while he was in prison. Verse 6, but when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Now, at Herod's party, with wine flowing freely, Herodias, his wife, told her daughter Salome to dance before Herod. She coached her daughter. This was a 16- or 17-year-old girl who gave a very seductive, a very seductive, a very sensual dance before Herod. And because he was probably in this party inebriated, he promised her anything she asked for in his kingdom. All of this was part of the coaching of her mother. The mother knew he probably would offer her something in return, and the mother said, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Why? Because, first of all, the obvious is that uh, John the Baptist spoke against her coming to be with Herod Antipas. And so she probably carries an anger towards him for that. Secondly, her husband is now befriending this man. And maybe now she's feeling left out and also just can't stand the guy to begin with. So let's get rid of him, knowing that Herod probably would not have had him killed. In fact, it says that when he had his head offered up on a platter, that made the king sorry. Okay? So all this led to Herod Uh, led Herod to fear what he had heard about Jesus' ministry, thinking John the Baptist had come back to life. Verse 12, And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So we have two stories being told at the same time here. First, the fact that Herod had John the Baptist murdered, and then the story of how Jesus learns of John's death. Uh, But led... What led Herod in the beginning, remember, he talked about the fact that he was, he was fearful of, Je- of Jesus because he thought it was John the Baptist coming back in the flesh. So Herod's acting out of fear. And then, of course, we now see something else. We get to see 
the defeat and the discouragement of John's disciples. Can you imagine? Just as Jesus had disciples, John had disciples. And now they are going in and taking the body, not the head, the body of John the Baptist, and separately his head, and burying their, their, their leader. Can you imagine the impact on these disciples? What did John do that was wrong? Not one thing. In fact, John was obedient to the word of God. John was upholding truth even to a king. And for that, his head was cut off. Now these disciples bring to Jesus the news of John's death. This opens an entire world to us. So many times we think as we go through life's trials and setbacks and sorrows and loss, sometimes through tragedy, how can God relate to me in this? How could Jesus possibly understand? And we forget the story of John the Baptist who was Jesus' cousin. Now we're talking family. But he was also a cohort of Jesus in ministry. God put this tandem together. The final prophet of the Old Testament came and was given in the New Testament as the forerunner of the Son of God, the Messiah coming to save men from their sins. There was a special bonding between these men as members of the same family, and there was a bonding because of the relationship in ministry. And now they bring to Jesus these disheartening, uh, this disheartening report. And so how would Jesus respond to the news? That's the question. This gives us a little insight into how Jesus responds to us and how we should respond to the difficulties of life look at verse 13 now when jesus heard this he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself matthew does not give us any details about jesus emotions doesn't let us see any words that might have come out of his mouth as the disciples brought the the difficult report but Matthew just pulls back and gives you an overview and says, Jesus, when he heard this, this is the reason why he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Jesus and John were that close. This, I'm sure, not in the God side of Christ, but in the man side. He is fully God, fully man. And as fully man, this shook him. This was a family member. This was a ministry cohort. John's the one who said, as Jesus was walking along one day, to his crowd that was following John, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So when Jesus hears the news of John's murder. 
he withdraws to a quiet place. He boards a boat and sets sail for the other side of the lake. Now, this is the Sea of Galilee we're talking about. They are in Capernaum in that area. And now they're going, Jesus is going to leave Capernaum by boat and simply go to a distant shore, a more desolate area. If you look at the Sea of Galilee, it is about eight miles wide at the center. But in the northern part of the sea, obviously, it's very narrow. It comes together. And so that's where, that's where over here, if, I'm, if you're looking this way, see the Capernaum would be up here on the lake. This is the, the rim of the lake. Here's uh, Capernaum. Jesus probably made his way over here somewhere, maybe to Bethany. We're not really, or uh, Bethsaida. We're not really sure, but right along in a desolate place. He probably only traveled a mile and a half to two miles by boat. He wants to be alone. He wants time before God the Father. When we get bad news, when we come into a difficulty of life, and we all do, where do you turn? What do you do next? Do you know how to properly grieve? One of the things, the problems with COVID is it has really messed up how people grieve loss. In many cases, especially a few months ago, you couldn't even see your loved one as they were dying of COVID. You couldn't go be with them in the end. So there was never closure. And then on top of that, a few months ago, there were no funerals. People couldn't gather together. And so there's this sense of loss without the right or healthy grieving process. The healthy process Jesus gives us, the first thing we should do when we come into a trial or come into a setback is we get away and sit before the Father. Get the Word of God out. Turn to the promises of God. There's no better time for us to receive the Word than when we're struggling and we're in great need. Jesus said, come to me if you're thirsty, and I will give you a drink. And there's no greater thirst than when you're alone or when you're lonely or when you've experienced loss, when you've experienced a great pain. And so Jesus ministered before the Father. The Father ministered to the Son. That was the whole idea here. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But look at verse 13, the latter part. But when the crowds heard, they followed him on foot from the towns. So what they did, they left the Capernaum area, and they could see the direction the boat was heading. It wasn't going that far away at the rim of the lake. So they just started running around the rim. And when Jesus finally came to rest on that desolate shore, it wasn't so desolate. The scripture records that about 5,000 people had gathered. Now understand, there's no city, there's no village right there. This is a des Jesus was getting away to a quiet place, and yet he runs into a crowd of people. Verse 14, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and look at this response. Knowing the state that Jesus is in emotionally. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. 
Now, I want you to get the picture. Jesus is mourning the death of his cousin and ministry cohort. Yet when he arrives to this more secluded location, he sees this crowd of people. How would Jesus respond? When he went ashore, he saw a crowd and he had compassion on them. Oh God, give Vero Bible Fellowship a heart of ministry like this. God, do that work in us. Whenever we see people, rather than think of our own personal needs, and we all have them, Jesus has a very deep one. Yet, in that moment, he saw the need of others. And he set aside his own emotional need and he ministered to other people. This gives you an insight into why people wanted to be around Jesus. This probably should give you and I an insight into how we can point people to Jesus by simply being available to people helping to meet their need instead of just our own. Whenever we see them, we become moved with compassion towards them. God, give us a heart of compassion towards the needs of others. The needs of the people always move the heart of Jesus. This is something that you see throughout his earthly ministry. He couldn't see a needy person without being moved with compassion towards them. Now, that doesn't mean that every time God gave him permission to go and heal everybody. He didn't. Sometimes he even left the crowd. Why? Because his number one goal was to do the will of the Father. And sometimes God said, okay, that's all we're doing here. Now I need you to go here. And, and likewise for us. But generally speaking, when Jesus saw the need, he met the need. He ministered to people. People were the value to him. He came to what? Seek and save Wall Street? Seek and save businesses? Seek and save pension plans? He came to seek and save lost people. Verse 14, and he had compassion on them. And here it says that he healed their sick. Now let's be clear. Many of these people were not really seeking Jesus. All they were seeking was help. They wanted him to help their sick loved one or whoever that they brought. Jesus could have taken this moment to scold them in that. All you ever want is the benefits. You never come to me interested in the commitment that I'm asking you to make. He could have gone there. He had every right to go there. He didn't. He never chided them. He just went ahead and ministered to them freely. And now the next section of this passage probably explains why. This is really going to get good, folks. I'm so excited this morning to share this with you because I know many of your situations, what you're going through, the level of pain, the level of suffering, the level of just darkness. Many people are struggling. They're discouraged, confused, some are in despair. This passage is going to minister to us. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, 
and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So get the picture. Jesus gets out of the boat, grieving the loss of John, wanting to have quiet time, sees the crowd, begins to minister to them, touching and healing people everywhere. And now it's the end of the day. The disciples say, hey, let's send them back to the villages. Remember, this is a desolate place. They've got to get food. But Jesus said to his disciples, look at this, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. How easy it is for us when we get weary is turn people away. And Jesus lovingly saying to us, stop trying to do this ministry out of your own strength. You're too weak for that. In your weakness, I can be strong. You give them something to eat. You can do it. Don't send them off to somebody else. Minister to them. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Here we see the Son of God acting out of his authority and power that God the Father has given him. He took limited resources, five loaves and two fish. He blessed it, gave it out, and fed 5,000 people. You say, well, I can't do that. You're right, you can't. Don't ever forget it. <laughs> Some of us walk around like we think we're God, you know. We're not God, right? But let's really slow down here. We don't want to miss a wonderful teaching moment in the life of Christ. Notice the progression towards meeting the needs of people. This is good for us. Verse 19, latter part of the verse. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Something important happens between the blessing and the giving. There's a breaking. Now we have a better understanding of why Jesus had compassion on the crowd. Here's why. Because before he ministered to them, he had just experienced brokenness himself the news of John the Baptist. He was in a place where he was extremely pliable. He was extremely open to the needs of others. He saw their needs the way you and I should see needs. And the key to it, the prerequisite, the litmus test, is the brokenness. There's a sense of brokenness in this picture. One of the reasons we're so hesitant to minister to one another is because something's missing in us. It's not that we're not blessed. Every one of us have gifts. Every one of us have time. We can make time. It's not that there isn't a great need all around us. We know there's a great need right now in this world. What's often missing is our brokenness. 
You say, well, I only have a little gift. I don't have much to give people anyway. Little is much when God is in it. Your gift in the Lord's hand goes a long way, but before he can use you in that situation, God first has to break you. Why? Because it's not likely that God can do anything great inside of us and through us until we first experience brokenness. I know a little bit of something about brokenness. A little bit. I don't know a lot. I know a little bit. Personally. And when the Lord began Vero Bible Fellowship, one of the requirements to becoming a, a, a shepherd of this flock, an elder, was that not just following what Titus and Timothy say about eldership, which, by the way, is the same thing that is said in Titus about deacons. The only difference between the elder and the deacon, according to Titus, is the elder must be able to teach the Word of God. Everything else is the same. But one of the things that I began to think about in my life, because God had changed my whole course, God had brought me into a new level of caring for people and ministering to people. And the key for me was my brokenness. And so we said, not only will you follow, will we follow 1 Timothy and Titus in, in the selection of elders that God might have as a calling, but, but they need to be humble men who have experienced brokenness in their life. They need to be able to tell you about the brokenness and they need to be able to tell you how God used the brokenness to change them. The best ministers are the broken ones. They're the best. I'm not talking about a popularity contest here. I'm talking about usefulness. Their feet are on the ground. They understand what it is to fail. They understand what it is to fall. They understand what it is for life to smack them in the face. And they turn to God. And in turning to God, he uses the brokenness. When we were getting counseling, Rini and I, shortly after, we were term I was terminated as a pastor of another church in town. Um, the counselor said, I want you to suck the life out of the pain that you feel. Let God teach you in this season. And let the classroom be your brokenness and your pain. I'm so glad for that advice. Think of Mary with the alabaster jar. She wanted to anoint Jesus' feet and minister to him. But to do that, to let the ministry flow from her to him, she first had to break the alabaster jar. Think about Gideon who took his 300 men and put torches inside of clay pots and they surrounded the Midianites and on a given signal they broke the clay pots so that the light would come from all directions and it overwhelmed and caused confusion in the camp of the Midianites and the Midianites ended up killing each other. Israel was victorious not when they did physical battle. They were victorious when they 
followed God's instruction and broke the pots. Brokenness. Before the Lord can use a person greatly, he must allow him to be hurt and broken deeply. This is the way of the Lord, church. This needs to be the way of Vero Bible Fellowship, especially in this season when so many people are hurting. This is not the time for us to send them to somebody else. This is not the time to scold somebody because you're still in the same place you were three months ago. You haven't changed at all. You're not growing, blah, blah, blah. No, this is the time to minister, to be a presence in their life, to pray for them, to comfort them, to encourage them, to point them back to Scripture. This is a time for us to do great ministry. It says in verse 20, And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. What a glorious day of ministry. It happened under the most unusual set of circumstances, which is often the case. The best days of ministry in your life will be the days when you feel least adequate, when you were least prepared. It's just amazing how that works. I've, I've often said to young pastors when they would talk to me, and I would say, your best sermon will never be your best sermon. The one that you crafted and worked so hard to put together and shape and share with people. No, no. Your best is when you get in that pulpit and you are utterly dependent on Almighty God. And He lays on your heart a burden for the people that you're speaking to. And all of a sudden, all the preparation and the research and the study takes a back seat to the work of the ministry by the Holy Spirit. It does not mean that you move away from the Word of God. You continue to faithfully teach the Word that day, but it's coming out of a broken vessel, not a polished vessel. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he, was dis while he dismissed the crowd. So now they've fed the people. It's been an incredible day of ministry. Jesus, who came into the, to the moment uh, emotionally depleted, went ahead, saw the people had compassion, ministered to the people, taught his disciples how to trust God, taught where the answer for ministry comes from. It's not the blessing alone, and it's not the giving. It's the brokenness in between that makes the difference in the giving. And now he sends them off on a boat. Go back over to Capernaum. I'll join you later. I'm going to go up on the mountain. I'm going to finally get what I set out to get when I came over here. Time alone with God. Verse 24, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. You bet. You see Jesus walking on water. The text says that uh, they thought they were seeing a ghost. They were scared to death. They, 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 they were struggling against the storm, the winds, the waves. They're really trying to make ground, and they're losing ground. And, and th by the way, all they've done 
is what Jesus commanded them to do. He said, go back over to the other side. Get in your boats, go back over. Jesus sent them into a storm. Very important for us to see. Makes you wonder, maybe Jesus is the one behind the storm I'm facing today. And suddenly, as they're in the storm, obeying Christ, Jesus himself appears on the water. I had an experience like that. Okay, no, I'm not saying I'm Jesus. Okay, this is funny. So back when I was just a young man uh, operating out of energy and ignorance. When you're older, it's wisdom and wounds, you know. But uh, back then, (laughs) amen. But back then, I had a 13-foot whaler-type boat, foam-filled. And so I set out in the ocean to go do some fishing in my 13-foot boat, which I did a lot. And I really enjoyed it and caught a lot of fish. But this day, I, I wanted to get out a little deeper, and I wanted to uh, fish for some uh, 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 kingfish. So I'm out there, and I'm drifting a nice sardine, you know, and having a good time. Only problem is the waves are about four to five feet. So on a 13-foot boat, uh, you're just up and down and up and down, and it's kind of crazy. And all of a sudden... I see a boat racing out towards me. And then as I see the boat, I notice this is a patrol boat. And the officer comes up alongside me and he says, Sir, do you have a life jacket? I said, Sure, it's right here. Showed him. He goes, Well, I can tell you, I got to tell you, I was way back there and I thought I saw a boat for a second and then I didn't see anything. I got my binoculars and I looked and I saw a man walking on water. I couldn't even see your boat. I just saw this little figure of a guy standing on top of the water. Well, that's the closest that I'll ever be to Jesus, okay, in this life. <laughs> but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. So he walks on the water. They're fearful. They're thinking they're seeing a ghost. And he says, Take heart, it's I. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter's smart enough to know I can't walk on water by myself, but I can if Jesus gives me permission. So he asked permission. There's, there's Peter, you know, impetuous Peter, always going to stick it out there. And, uh, and so Jesus said to him, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now the reason Peter could walk on water was not because he thought this would make for a great book one day. It wasn't because he wanted to take a picture, have one of the disciples, hey, take a photo of this and I'll stick it on my Facebook page. This will be an awesome picture, get a lot of talk. No, no, he he wasn't motivated by notoriety or fame. He's he's motivated to come near to Jesus. I want to be near him. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. By the way, he did walk for a little while on water, Peter. But then he saw the wind. He took his eyes off Jesus. And so he does the right thing in the wrong situation. He took his eyes off of Christ. That's not good. But then when he took his eyes off of Christ, the next thing he does is he calls out to Christ, save me. That's a great scenario for us, and probably one that we have experienced before in our lives. 
We start out doing the Lord's will, doing what he asks us to do, and before long, trials come up, storms blow up on us, and we are looking at the storm and worried about the storm, and we start to sink. And the only thing we should do in that moment is call out to Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. Now that's an amazing story, isn't it? How, how Peter was able for a time to walk on water, first of all. By the way, uh, historical books reference that Peter was a very tall man. He was a big man. Uh, he was, in fact, some of the books record he was a giant. Uh, so he was a taller guy. So this is a big guy that's now out walking on water, and then all of a sudden he's falling in the water, and Jesus with one hand to a big guy. Whoop. This whole idea that Jesus is a weakling, I don't know where we get that from. He just reaches down, picks him up, brings him to the... And, and so, interestingly, I think this really speaks to us. I can just hear Jesus chuckling as he's lifting Peter out of the water and is saying, Oh, you have such little faith, Peter, and giggling about it. You just have such little faith. What happened to you? You started out so well, and then you took your eyes off me. You have little faith. You can just see that, you know. you got to believe that sometimes the Lord's doing that to us. We're making some kind of a big goof decision, and man, we're just beating ourselves up over it and whatever, and Jesus, oh, it's okay, you're going to be fine. But you did show a little lack of faith there. Strengthen your faith in me. Keep your eyes on me. It's going to get better. Isn't that wonderful? Why does God allow storms? Well, scripturally, storms appear for two reasons. One is for a corrective reason. A storm can come as a correction to correct us. They serve to put us back on the right path with God. All you have to do is ask Jonah about the correcting storms of life. Jonah can answer. He understands those. We get out of shape. We get out of, out of sorts with God. We're going in our own direction. We're rebelling. And God sends a storm. And guess what happens? He's able to get us back on track. Those of us who listen to him. And then the second type of storm is not the correction. It's for perfection. It's to perfect us. These are storms that strengthen our faith and help develop our spiritual maturity. In this passage, the disciples were obeying Jesus' commands, so it's not a storm of correction. It's the other one. It's the storm of perfection. And it did. Look at the next verse. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Their eyes were set back on Jesus in the midst of a storm because he calmed it. He brought Peter across the water, and now they are just in this state of worship. Oh, to be in a storm and then look to Jesus and call out to him for help and realize that he allowed that storm to come because he's correcting you or he is perfecting you. He's growing your faith, and now it just makes you want to worship him all that much more, doesn't it? It just puts you back into this right place. There was never a time in my life when I wanted to worship God more than the Sunday following my termination. And that Sunday morning, uh, my, my children and my wife 
and their spouses. We went down to the uh, park and sat at a picnic table under a pavilion. And Mark brought his guitar, and we just worshiped God. Sobering, beautiful, pure, nothing but Jesus. I'll never forget that. Not long after that, Rini and I found ourselves sitting over at Young's Park, looking out at the water and turning on a little, uh, on our iPhone, putting on uh, a song by um, Sons and Daughters, All Sons and Daughters, on brokenness and just wept together in the presence of Jesus. And he ministered to us. And I wanted to, I was just so overwhelmed with the idea of worshiping God. Just taken by it. When you go through your trial, your struggle, whatever it is, your loss, you've got to get with Jesus. You've got to sit before him. You've got to stop complaining about the storm. You've got to stop trying to outrun the storm. You've got to just receive Christ in the storm. Call out for him. He'll come to you. And even though the storm might not stop in that moment as you're sitting with him, you won't feel the storm. You're just, you're just receiving ministry from Christ. You're just finding yourself opening up the Bible and wanting to read the Psalms, wanting to find answers in the Psalms. You find yourself over time, God perfecting you, and now all of a sudden you're like, why am I not ministering to people? I've, God has given me such a wonderful, intimate relationship. I want to give that away to others. I want to love people the way God's loving me. And we find ourselves called out. Gary, you were playing to get the drums this morning, and thank you for doing that. Uh, love having Ray on the, what, how do you say it, Ray? The Calhoun. But I love the drum as well. And, and Gary was, he was in the hospital for a, uh, a few days with an issue not long ago. And when I called upon him and we talked and he shared, man, I just had opportunities to share Christ with people. So, I, you know, here, here we are in our storm, and if we're with Jesus in the storm, he, he ministers to us, and then we have opportunity in the storm to minister to others. I'm, I'm, Gary, I told you this back then. I really would like to have you share that testimony in church, uh, and there's others of you. We, we want to start at least, you know, once a month or every two months hearing some of these wonderful stories out of people's lives. Because that strengthens us, doesn't it? Doesn't it encourage us? Well, let's finish this up. And when they crossed over, verse 34, they came to, the, to land at Genesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they set around to all of that region, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Wow. So Jesus coming out of a situation where he was grieving the loss and then ministers to people in his own brokenness, in his own emotional depletion, 
And then at the end of the night, he goes up into the mountain and he starts to pray and he spends time with the Father. And then in the middle of the night, he literally goes down to the beachside because if this was in the spring, the, the moon would have been bright. He could see the disciples on the water struggling in the storm. And he walks out on the water, ministers to his disciples, perfecting them even more, growing their faith. And then he climbs in the boat, gets to the, back to the other side of the lake, and there's more people waiting to be ministered to. And, 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 but it was not Jesus. He, he didn't have a magical garment. The garment wasn't magical that if you touch it, something happens. That's what we do. We make idols out of things that God uses. And that's not what God wants. It's that they had faith that Jesus could heal them if they just touched the garment. Remember the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years and she went to doctors, nobody knew what to do to help her. She couldn't get help. The disciples had a crowd that was pressing in to Jesus. They surrounded him like bodyguards trying to keep the crowd from touching him. And he's moving through the crowd because the people wanted to be near him to receive from him. And this woman with an issue of blood for 12 years, a hemorrhage, she reaches through somehow and she touches, the Bible says, the hem of his garment. And Jesus pauses and he said, who touched me? A flow of healing power left him because this woman reached out by faith and touched him. That's the faith we should walk in. It's not the faith that says, well, I know God could heal. We all know that. It's a faith that says, if I can just believe in him, he has the potential to heal me. He can do this. Now, whether he does it, that's his business. For some reason, God didn't save John the Baptist's life. For some reason, the disciples found themselves in a storm. Sometimes God orders up the mess, the chaos, because there's a greater work than healing that he wants to do. But we should still be people of faith, amen? Believing in Jesus. Well, I don't know what you're facing in your life right now. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know your situation. I know some of your situations. As elders, we met Wednesday night, and we prayed for a good length of time over the needs of this body. So we know a little bit, a little bit about what's happening. But, but I'm telling you, you've got to reach out to Jesus by faith. You've got to call upon him in your time of great need. When the storm blows in, you've got to call his name. Lord, I need your help. Lord, save me. Not, not Lord, come alongside and, and do a part. No, Lord, I surrender to you. Save me. Do what only you can do. I can't do it. And it's amazing how God is able to bring us through some of the most horrendous situations. Young moms of children who lose a spouse. And God is able to bring that woman through that. Maybe that's been your story, some of you. I want to close our time together and I want to just thank you for staying with me through as we work through this kind of a slower pace verse by verse but no real subject or focus other than the fact that Jesus ministers to people he loves people he has compassion on people and he wants us to have the same compassion 
for people, for one another. And, and, and in our pain, and our struggle, he's there with us. But we've got to be willing to be broken, to be used of God. We've got to be willing to let God bring us through a storm in order for him to correct us or to perfect us. Amen? In this moment, let's just have silence. Let's, let's bow our heads, close our eyes. That works better than bowing our eyes and closing our heads. And in this moment, just between you and the Father, cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Jesus made it very clear, come unto me if you're burdened and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus wants to trade your heaviness for his yoke, which is lighter. He wants every one of us to carry some burden. That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But he'll take the heavy weight. So let's give it to him. Just in your own time with the Lord, call out to Jesus. Father, for some of us, we just don't know how to hand things over. That's foreign to us. We've been taught to, you know, pull up the bootstraps and get it done. God, we would be the person who, at some point, if it hasn't already happened, we're going to sink. So like Peter, who was a big man, who probably was very self-sufficient prior to Christ, he came to realize, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Lord, I pray that now we would just hand over our situations. That we would take upon ourselves your yoke and give you our yoke. That we would call upon you in our time of need and know that the answer is coming. It might not be in the way we ask. It might not be in the shape or the form that we expect but you will either perfect or correct for the glory of God in our lives. So, Father, do your work, we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. If you have need of anything, would you please go to the table in the back and write it down for us? Just let us know what's going on. Or go to info at vbf.org. Info, I-N-F-O, at vbf.org, and leave your message, a private message for us, so that we can add you to our prayer list as elders. We've got elders, we've got uh, prayer partners who are coming up this morning. This is a time that God has made available for us to receive help in our time of need. Please come forward 
if you'd like to pray with someone about what you're facing, what you're going through, or maybe your burden for somebody that's not here. Let them agree with you for that person. Okay? Let's take advantage of the opportunity. I'll be honest with you, the way I'm wired, what I would have wanted to do this morning was at some point in this sermon is break you into small groups of four to five and let you minister to one another. And that day might come some, someday, but not under COVID. We, can, we just can't do it right now. My wife, I told my wife, I said, so what do you, and I knew, I was just playing with her. I said, so what do you think about if I just break people into small groups? Let them give a holy kiss also before they're done. <laughs> and she's like, uh, <laughs> no. In no uncertain terms. Uh, but we, do, we will minister to you. They're all here. They're ready to help you. So just come forward if you will. And others of you, you know one of the most beautiful sights before and after service is not just when we as the body are in fellowship, loving each other, sharing, catching up, encouraging, supporting one another, but it's also a beautiful sight when you see people standing there praying together. You see, we don't see each other like this except once a week. This is the opportunity to open our eyes and see what Jesus saw when he got out of that boat and saw the crowd. Let's minister Amen? Amen? Let's be that church. Let's be broken people before God, that God might use us. Amen? Yes. All right, God bless you. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. Receive ministry if you need it. We're here.